there's more to this life than I thought. And James inspires me. The things he says have encouraged me. It's like there's a walk, there's a path, and it's leading to something more real than I've ever known before, and it's exciting. I get around James and I hear things that help me in my life, my work. This work he talks about has become my work. I am excited about the possibility that other people could be affected, other people could be inspired to work on themselves, to grow, to, to realize there's more to this life. Why is this way called the work? How can esotericism in general be called work? When most people think of work, they don't think of something very pleasant. Now, some people do. Some people really like their work. But nobody likes their work all the time because everybody's work has unpleasant times. There's unpleasant parts of it. If it was pleasant all the time, we would be not who we are. We would be someone else. But as it is, nothing is pleasant all the time because we are unable to keep anything pleasant all the time. Because our minds want to say, this isn't it. It has to be some other way in order for me to be happy. But there are people who can have it pleasant all the time because they can say, well, this is it. So I find this pleasant. This is wonderful. There are people like that. But they have trained themselves. That's why they're like that. They didn't just grow like that like a flower grows. They didn't just fall out of the sky like that and then they were like that. They trained themselves to be like that. Work does not mean behaving as we please. It means behaving more consciously. Its object is change of being. What does that really mean? The work's object is change of being. Change of being means to change yourself. What is yourself? How can we know ourself in order to change it? This is where the problem comes in and this is what the work is. It's about finding what yourself is. Because if you don't know what yourself is, how can you change it? We think we do know what ourself is. We think we know ourselves. But the fact of the matter is, we don't know ourselves. But we have to be convinced of that. And that conviction does not come easily as a rule. Usually it takes a couple of conscious shocks and spaced repetition. Conscious shocks, one after another, repeating with a space between the repetitions. As we are, we have a self-image. Image, the word image, is derived from the Latin word imago, which means to imitate. It's the same root word, imago, the same root that's used for imagination. Image, imago, imagination, all comes from the same thing, to imitate. The self is kind of like, I'm going to use this example, and it will fall apart if you hold on to it too tightly, but it's an example that points to what I'm trying to say. And you have to let go of the words. You can climb the scaffolding. You can walk around the, the space on the scaffolding. But sooner or later, you have to let go of the scaffolding. And you have to trust that the space will be able to hold you and leap into it. I've used that example before. It's a good example, so I'm using it again. The self is like a bird's nest. It's made of bits and pieces that are gathered from here and there, woven together as a temporary container that really can't last. Scaffolding and a bird's nest are a lot the same. Words are like that. The self is like that. The important part of a bird's nest is not the nest, it's the hole that it makes that will contain something. The bird doesn't make the nest for no reason. The bird makes the nest so that it can put eggs in that nest and raise its young in that nest. It's the hole in the nest that is important, not the nest itself. Freud's theoretical construct of ego has come to mean, in our society, a person's sense of self-esteem or self-importance, an overly high opinion of oneself. So when somebody says ego, what we think of in our society now is not what Freud meant when he said ego. He said id, ego, superego. Those were the three 
parts of the mind, or actually functions of the mind, that he was drawing our attention to. It now has come to mean a person's sense of self-esteem, self-importance, or an overly high opinion of oneself. Well, he's got a lot of ego, hasn't he? Which means he thinks a lot of himself, or he's arrogant, or he's pompous, or he thinks he's great, or whatever. Freud used it to label a specific function of the mind, and unfortunately it's been confused by people to think that the mind is cut up into three different rooms, and it's not that way at all. Freud's translator coined the terms as Latinizations of, in German, is es das, which means it. So it's id, ego, superego, or translatinizations of it, the I, and the over or upper eye, uber eye. What Freud said was the it, the I, and the over eye. A German, reading Freud's works in German, would understand immediately he wouldn't need ego, id, ego, superego. But this is where the word ego came from. And these days, there's this big buzz about it. Freud said the ego is that part of the id, the it, which has been modified by the direct influence of the external world. The ego, the I, represents what may be called reason and common sense, in contrast to the id, or the it, which contains the passions. In its relation to the id, or the it, it is like a man on horseback who has to hold in check the superior strength of the horse, with the difference that the rider tries to do so with his own strength, while the ego uses borrowed forces. So if somebody's riding a horse and he's trying to hold back the horse, the superior strength of the horse, he's doing it with his own strength, and he's using a bit and bridle. But for the ego, it's using what it's borrowed from the world, whatever it's accumulated, whatever it's, whatever it's acquired from the world. So you start to see that when Freud is talking about ego, the work is talking about false personality. It's like, well, that's interesting. That's false personality. But the work would say that false personality includes the it, or the id, the ego, or the I, and the super I, or the upper I, the super ego. That would all be included in false personality. And then the work, the fourth way, starts to divide up the false personality so that you can examine it, so that you can become aware of it in pieces rather than it's just one big clump, one big hole. So you look at a bird's nest and it's just one bird's nest. But as you take it apart and you watch it or you watch it be built, you'll see that they gather a piece of string from here and a twig from there and grass from there and they weave it all together. And this is more like how we ourself is built. It's all these bits and pieces that have been collected from all these people and woven together to form this image, this imaginary I, this thing that we call I, that we place our sense of self in so that we think, well, this is I, this is me, this is who I am. And so we end up with that. Now, Eckhart Tolle's books, The Power of Now and The New Earth, have created a new buzz using the word egoic the egoic self, the egoic whatever this and like that. And so now people go around, they say this term egoic and they don't really necessarily know what it means, but it's kind of a buzzword. It's a flash word. So it's popular today because it's a buzzword. It means of or relating to a sense of separate self or individuality, relating to or dealing with states of consciousness confined to the limits of personal identity. So that's the definition of egoic. Egoic was first used in print in 1916, seven years prior to Freud's The Ego and the Id, where he lined out this it, I, and 
over I or upper I, the id, the ego, the superego. So the term egoic was used in metaphysical writings seven years before that. that was, so, so that was 1916. Ego, false personality, I, self, all of these things are all used to point to our sense of self as a separate individual personal thing. The problem is, for us, self as a separate individual thing apart from everything else. Well, what's the problem with that? There are hundreds of spiritual messages concerning this general theme of the self, the ego, the I, the false personality, whatever you choose to call it. And I really don't care what you call it. My main concern is that you identify the fact that you have this thing in which your sense of self resides, like a bird's nest, and you reside in that. It's your home. It's your container. It contains your sense of self. And so your sense of self then becomes limited by the container. If you want to expand your sense of self outside of the container, something has to happen. That's all we're talking about right now. Ospensky said, we are awake already, but it is not fully realized. That's the first precept in his 15 precepts when he introduced the fifth way. He said in the second precept, was self-remembering is unnecessary. So for people in the work, this is very difficult. Everybody in the work is trying to wake up. He says, well, we're already awake. It's just not realized. The truth is, is that people who understand the work know that the work really says that too. But it doesn't say that in the beginning. It only says it later when you actually can hear it, when you can actually make some sense of it. In the beginning, it says we're asleep and we need to awaken. Because in the beginning, we think we are asleep and we think we do need to awaken because we have not realized our condition, and it's a matter of realization. The word realization is a word that has to be used more because awake looks like either you're awake or you're not awake. And we don't see awake as degrees, degrees of realization, but we need to see it that way. Jack Nicholson said, what if this is as good as it gets? In the movie, as good as it gets. His, his character, Melvin, whatever his name was, said, what if he walks into the office and goes, well, a psychiatrist office, well, what if this is good, as good as it gets? And everybody just looks at him. That is a moment of realization. What if this is as good as it gets? What if there's nothing you can do to make it any better than it is right now? What if this is as good as it gets? Wouldn't you be a total idiot to not accept it? Yes, you would. You'd be an idiot not to accept it. But you see, the thing is that the self, the ego, this, this false personality will not let us accept that. It will not allow us to accept that. It insists, no, I can do something to make it better. You could do something to make it better. If you will just stop doing what you're doing, that will make it better. If you will just start doing this instead of that, that will make it better. And if everybody would do what I want them to do, it would make it perfect. That's what the self, the ego, the false personality, the I, is constantly saying. This isn't it. It's got to be some other way in order for me to be happy. But Jack Nicholson's character says, well, what if this is as good as it gets? And this is what needs to be introduced into this thought process that is the false personality, the self, the ego, the I, whatever. Right now, this is as good as it gets. Something doesn't like that. That something is what we're talking about. Whatever you call it. I don't care what you call it. Whatever it is, that something is what we're talking about. Something doesn't like the way it is right now. Something can improve it. Something thinks that it can improve on reality. It can make reality better. And the only way it can make reality better, because it can't make reality more real, so the only way it can make reality better is to change reality. Well, since reality can't really be changed, 
The only thing it can do then is imagine that it can change reality and then imagine that it is actually changing reality and then be unhappy as a result of it. It, this something that we're talking about, keeps us in misery. Now, I want to make a distinction between misery and suffering. There's some suffering that just happens. It is just necessary. For whatever reason, we won't say what the reason is. It may be for this or it may be for that. It doesn't matter. If you have a lapse in awareness and you put your, finger, your hand on something hot and burn yourself, you suffer. That's necessary suffering because that's according to the laws of nature. If you put your hand on something that's too hot, it will burn you. The reason you get burned is so that you know to get, you feel it, is so that you know to get your hand off of there so you don't burst into flames. So that's the reason for the pain. And we call that pain suffering. But when we resist that, we add to that suffering misery. Okay, so that's the distinction that I want to make. Misery is what's not necessary. Misery is what the something adds to the suffering. Suffering can be perceived in different ways. It can be perceived as misery, or it can be, it can be perceived as temporary thing that's happening right now, these temporary sensations that are happening right now that will pass. But it can't be perceived that way unless you can perceive it that way. And that just doesn't fall out of the sky and land in your lap. You've got to work to get that. I want to make a distinction between work and struggle. Struggle is not work. Struggle has more to do with something. That something that we're talking about, the ego, the false personality, the I, whatever we choose to call it, that struggles. And why does it struggle? Because it is resisting reality. And when you resist the reality, since you can't really resist reality, you have to struggle. You have to create motion. You have to create something. And since the only thing that you can really create is resistance. That is what struggle is. Struggle is really resistance. What I'm talking about work is not resistance. It's not the struggle of resistance. It is something entirely different. It's not struggling against something from a resistant state of mind. It is working with something from a non-resistant state of mind. And it's not really a state of mind so much. It's just that words break down very quickly here. It's a state of unmind. It's a state of non-mind. It's more of a space around the mind rather than from inside the mind. If you don't mind misery, life is great all the time. If you like misery, life is great. Misery loves company. If you can get other people involved in your misery, life can be wonderful all the time because misery is what you want. So the life can be great. So then you don't need to do anything. Just go on with your life. If you don't want to repeat misery, you don't want your life to be miserable, repetitively miserable all the time, over and over again, once a week, once a month, once a day, six times an hour, whatever it is for you, whatever your pattern is, whatever your misery pattern is. Everybody has a misery biorhythm. <laughs> and their misery will come up just like it was called on the phone, just like, it was, just like there's an alarm there for it, and it just comes up. And as you begin to observe these things about the false personnel, you begin to see these things, begin to come, become aware of them, you can actually start to gauge when it's going to happen. You can start to sense it coming. You can smell it on the wind. You can sniff the air and you can smell it coming. And you can prepare for it and you can either invite it and have tea with it you know, and be miserable or you can say, I'm going to do something else this time. But that doesn't happen right away. That takes a little bit of work. So if you don't want to repeat the misery, then something, this something that we're talking about, has to change. Now, change is a really misleading word. Change means to make or become different, transform. It's from the Latin word cambire, 
actually, which means barter. Exchange goods or, goods or services for other goods or services without using money. Interestingly enough, barter comes from the old French barater, which means to deceive. So, yes, I, I try to find what people meant when they came up with words. I try to find what did they mean. Because I find that if you can track down the roots, the meanings of these words, it really can open up a whole new world to you. Where we say, oh yes, well, transformation and change. But what does that really mean? What does change mean? Well, change meant ex exchange, barter. So without using money, I'll, change, I'll trade you this for that. That's what change meant. So in a sense, change, when we look at change, what we're talking about is changing this for that. We're, changing, we're, we're talking about exchanging one thing for another. How did we get how we are? Well, we've exchanged reality for this imaginary reality. We exchanged our real self for this imaginary self. We exchanged our life for this imaginary life that we acquired from other people, this false personality. We, we exchanged, I guess I could say, true personality, and so I will. I will say true personality just, just because it's a way of pointing to it. Now, if you want to make your life about it, then you can stay here on the scaffolding. But that's not my destination. That's not our destination. That's not the destination that I have planned for you if you will come along with me on this journey. If you will come along with me on this journey, I have a different destination in mind. And the destination I have in mind is outside of mind. It's not mind. It's non-mind. And that destination is not really a destination as much as a space because it's so big, because it's so huge, it can't really be called a destination. Because a destination is like a point, a spot that you go to on a map. This is my destination. This is outside of the map. This is what holds the map. This is, a, this is something so big. This is like the universe compared to the bird's nest. Okay, so the bird's nest being the self, the mind, and the universe that contains that self, that mind, and the billions of stars and the billions of galaxies and the billions of planets and asteroids and whatever else are all out there. And all of those things are specks compared to the universe. And what does that make the bird's nest compared to the universe? That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a destination that is so far beyond being able to be contained that it's not right to call it a destination. Ego, false personality, I, self, is a fraud. It's a deceiver. It is deception, which is why we track down the word from change, transform, barter, exchange, barter from old French, to deceive. So what we have now is a deceiver made up of many different parts, like people in a crowd. A crowd quickly becomes a mob. A mob is basically marching disorder. It's a bunch of people marching around to and fro with all different shapes, sizes, genders, clothes, some good, some bad, some nice, some not nice, some happy, some not happy, and they're all marching around in disorder. If you've ever been around a mob, you know that a mob can be a very dangerous thing, that in an instant, a mob can turn into death, destruction, mayhem. It's really a very volatile thing. Now, if you'll think about that mob outside there, a big mob at, say, a soccer game, you know, you have a soccer game going on, and this happens from time to time. All of a sudden, the mob gets out of control, and people start to die. They crush people. They run this way. They run that way. They start to, one person hits another person, another. Then the next thing you know, it just sweeps over the mob. This insanity sweeps over the mob, and everybody is in this chaotic, violent, upset state 
where all kinds of suffering is created and is happening. All kinds of misery is happening. The reason I use this to point toward the ego, to the false personality, is because it's easier for us to understand what it really is if we see it as a crowd or a mob. Then what this work becomes is crowd control. Police dealing with mobs and crowds and riots. What is a riot? A riot is a mob gone crazy. Well, what was it before that? It was a crowd. Well, what was it before that? It was a group. What was it before that? Well, it was a few people getting together. But you see, it escalated to all this stuff. And isn't it interesting how the ego, the false personality, the I, the self, can do just that? It's so volatile. In a moment, it's happy, and in the next moment, someone says something, and it's in a rage, and it's violent. It's just insane. It's crazy. It's filled. It's swarming with negative emotions and revenge and account-keeping and rah. Self-observation becomes the study of the crowd with all of its people in order to know it so it can no longer deceive us. This is the answer to my first question. How can esotericism in general be called work? Because this is the work of esotericism. The work of esotericism is really, in the beginning, police work. It's crowd control. It's riot control. And there are certain things that work with a mob that police have found, that psychologists have found, work with a mob. There are certain things that work and certain things that don't work. Because this knowledge exists, it would behoove us to partake of that knowledge in order to begin to control our own mob, this group of selves, this group of acquired eyes that we have, these thoughts, these feelings that turn into a mob and do these things that we don't want to be participating in. If we had those tools, then we would be able to control the mob. Seem like a good idea? That's the work of esotericism. It's not changing the crowd as much as freeing our ability to act from outside the mob. What happens is people try to change the self. That doesn't work. It doesn't work to change the false personality. So that's why I said change is a word that's misleading. What we should be saying is exchange. We should be bartering. We should be trading one thing for another thing. We should be trading our sense of self in the mob, in the false personality, for something else so that our sense of self can ride in a different something, much more expanded something. I told you this wasn't really going to be easy, and it's not an exact science when it comes to putting it into words because words will not hold it. So all we can do with words is kind of run around it. And if we can run around it enough, from, from enough different directions, perspectives, we can start to get a sense of it. We can start to get a sense of its shape. We can start to get a sense of its energy. We can start to get a sense of its meaning. And this is important because we need this sense in order to exchange. You, you can't exchange something for nothing. You have to have a sense of this nothing because there's no such thing as nothing. But there's something a lot like nothing. Our actions, when this happens, will be more real, less fraudulent, less miserable, less hurtful, less chaotic. Is that appealing to you? Is it, if it's appealing to you to have your actions be more real, less fraudulent, less pretentious. Remember, the, the word barter came from the old French word, which meant to deceive. So, in a sense, this self that we have, this false personality that we now have, is a deceiver and a fraud. And for us to exchange that deceiver and that fraud for something more real, 
less fraudulent, less miserable, less hurtful. Because that fraudulent thing is hurtful. That mob in a hurry can turn into a very hurtful, destructive force. And it's certainly chaotic because we never know what is going to happen. Do you know how you're going to react to everything? But we, for a long time, imagine that we do. And people will actually tell you, well, if I'd been there, I'd have done this. And if you ever thought about that while you were saying it, you stopped in mid-sentence. If I'd been there, I'd have, but I don't know what I'd have done. <laughs> That's a moment of reality. That's a moment of awareness. That's a moment of, of, of realization. I have no idea what I would do. I imagine I know what I would do. But the truth is, I have looked at my life, and I've seen me enough to know I could not be counted on to do what I think now I would do. Have you ever known better and acted worse? To act apart from the people that make up the mob is crowd control, not allowing the mob to lead our lives for us. As it is, this mob leads our lives for us. If you're in the middle of a mob, a, a real genuine riot, what choice do you have in the middle of it? You have no choice. Your choice is to move with it or to die under it. That's your choice. And because you don't really have a choice about survival, because it's in your the reptilian part of your brain, it's in your DNA that you will try to survive, flight or fight, you will go with the mob. That's what will happen. Or you will fall under its feet and you will be crushed. You will be trampled to death. Because that's what happens in mobs. The people who can't keep up or the people who get up against a wall or up against a fence that doesn't go down get crushed. That's what happens. You've seen it in the news. It's what happens. So it's not controlling the mob as much as stopping it from acting so that action can arise spontaneously from something else, something real, not imagined or gathered. This is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about shifting where our actions come from. Out of the mob, the false personality, the ego, our actions can arise spontaneously from something else. I'm not willing to try and define that something else now. Maybe we'll walk around it later and look at it. In fact, let's walk around it now and look at it. If you have a cup and its purpose is to hold something, what's the most important part of the cup? The hold. If you have a cup and its only purpose is to decorate it and it's never meant to hold anything, it's just for beauty, what do you have then? Well, you have a cylinder. You don't need a hole in it. You just have a cylinder that you can decorate. But if you put a hole in it, if you put a space in it, its purpose then is the hole. Its purpose is the nothing. What makes it valuable is what it isn't, not what it is. You are like a cup. Your false personality, your ego, yourself, your I, is the structure, the construct around the space. The real valuable part of you is the space, the whole, not what makes it, not what defines it. Acting from the whole rather than the construction that defines the whole is what I'm talking about. Allowing something to come out of that space rather than to come out of the construct around the space. You've heard in the work they say that false personality grows around essence. Let's call essence the whole. It's not, but let's just call it that for now. To let something come out of that rather than come out of the thing that surrounds it. As we are, we're stuck to the mob and can't shift from it. We begin by seeing the mob as a crowd of people. Eyes, not I. So that's the first step. Seeing it as many different parts, not just one whole thing. As long as we think that the ego is one, we're overwhelmed because the mob is too strong for us. The mob must be dispersed using proven crowd control tactics and techniques. This can be learned. The illusion of I is the first challenge. We think that we are one whole I. This is our first challenge. We've got to be able to somehow see this mob as dispersible, this I as something that can be broken down into different parts. 
this ego is something that can be broken down into different parts, manageable parts, rather than there's this mob, this sea, this mass of frenetic energy washing this way and then going that way, going in any direction and not knowing what it'll do in its volatility. The people in the crowd are taken for our thoughts. We must first see this. We must first see that this crowd is made up of thoughts. And as with any crowd, one of the things that crowd control people have found is if they say, if someone goes with a loudspeaker into a crowd and says, what's going on here? That works. It's a shock. It's a conscious shock. And all of a sudden, people stop. If they heard it, they stop. Now, they may not stop for long, but they stop. So that's the first question posed to the mob. What's going on here? Then we say, stop. What's going on here? Stop it. Make inner stop. What the work means when it says make inner stop is without arguing, without self-justifying, without explanation, stop. Stop inner talking about it and practice inner silence. Can you practice inner silence? Yes. And the way you do it is you stop talking about it. So every time somebody in the crowd says, but, 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 you say, stop. Next, remember I said, I think it was last week, stop mechanical disliking. The first problem we have with stopping mechanical disliking is we don't have any mechanical disliking. All of our disliking is conscious. We dislike people for a reason. There's no mechanical disliking here. I'm right to dislike you because you're wrong. You're not likable. That's mechanical disliking. But we don't like to admit that. For us, we need to start off with all disliking is mechanical. It's just better. Use that rather than, I don't dislike anybody mechanically. Just say, I dislike everything I dislike. It's mechanical. It's better that way. Trust me on this. It's better that way than the other way. The other way, you get nowhere. You just justify yourself. This way, at least if you really do genuinely dislike something and it's not mechanical, you'll sort that out. But the other way, you don't sort anything out. You just stay going the same course you've always been going. Nothing changes. You exchange nothing. You barter nothing, one thing for another. You can't barter up. You can't get any better. You can't get any freer. You can't get rid of anything that way. You keep it all. And remember, if you want to change, you can't stay the same. <laughs> you just can't stay the same. You have to, something has to be different. If we like what we don't like, then that leads to a right feeling of nothingness. What is that? Well, that's the whole again. The whole can hold your sense of self. It can't work if we don't know we're not the mob, because then we're full of mob thoughts, mob emotions, mob self-interest. We've got to make the shift from realizing we are not the mob. We've got to have some kind of separation there. We've got to be able to step apart from it, to step outside of it, and to see it as something that we're not. Later, we find the ringleaders in the mob who wish to maintain their power, their authority, and they're hostile to the work. People who incite riots don't like order. They're not interested in order. They're trying to create chaos and disorder because that serves their purpose. That hides them. That obscures their visibility. It obscures them so that they can't be seen, so they can't be picked out. Our job then becomes, obviously, finding the ringleaders of the mob, finding the inciters of the riot in our own false personalities, in our own ego, in our own sense of self, in our own I, imaginary I. These ringleaders all belong to a life notion of ourselves. A life notion of ourselves is imago, image, imaginary I, that which we imitate. If valued properly, the whole is easily and I'm spelling that H-O-L-E, the whole is easily strong enough to neutralize the ringleaders in the mob. First thing has to occur with us is our inner attitude has to be right. We've got to have a right inner attitude. You cannot rely on your mind. 
You have to rely on something else. While you are finding that something else, what this work offers you is crutches. The work acts as crutches so that you can hobble along on the work while you find your real legs so that you can really move yourself. If you'll do that, if you'll get your attitude toward this work, toward this inner thing, if you'll get that right, everything else will follow. Everything else will just unfold out of that and you won't have to worry about it. The linchpin of this work is the practical application of the ideas shared in the podcasts. If you'll go to solidrockvista.com to the thoughts page, I've written a number of articles that will help you to practice the principles that we're sharing with you in the podcasts.